My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to Pleasant Valley. Um, so good to be together. I want to welcome everybody online as well, wherever you are and wherever you are here this morning as well, wherever your heart condition. One of the things I wanted to again mention, we are looking for people to join us this year in prayer and prayer as a church that we would, there's three things. And if you want to stop by the next steps area right there on the way out this morning, Pastor James, his team are there, but we've got some of those prayer cards. If you lost yours, one, that we would stand firm on God's word, two, that we would have impact with the gospel. We would see the gospel have impact in our culture. Number three, for supernatural provision. Now, some of you may be like, man, I can't even pray for my own heart. (laughs) I don't even know what to pray for myself this morning. And you want me to pray these bigger things? Yes. But I also want to give you some hope this morning. Uh, This week, actually yesterday in my... uh, Another plug here for the Bible in One Year, B-I-O-Y, BibleinOneYear.org. If you don't have something, please join us reading God's word every day. Romans 8, uh, which is a favorite. It's a favorite chapter in the whole Bible. John Stott said this, it is a pillow for our weary heads. Romans chapter 8. If you want one chapter, you don't know anything else. Maybe John 3, 16 is all you got. And that's just because you watch football. You know, maybe that's all you got in your whole life. If you want to find a chapter to camp in and to put your head on, it's Romans 8. Now, we're not in Romans this morning, but I wanted to just share that because I was thinking about praying. And in that chapter, one of the things among many is this. We don't know what we should pray for. I don't know what to pray for. Pastor Chad's asking me to pray for these other things. Can't even pray for myself. What am I supposed to pray? And then it says this. The Spirit knows and actually prays for us. And it even says, if you're like, okay, right. It says it takes your longings, your aches, your uh, groans, and it translates them for you and prays according to the will of God the will of Christ for your life. Isn't that amazing? This morning, you may have come in, you feel so cold, you feel so distant. Maybe you don't even believe any of this stuff. You're checking this out. Maybe you've believed it a long time, but you're just kind of a little callous. You'd rather just circle up the wagons. Let's get out of here. I'm tired of this whole deal. This morning, Jesus is praying for you, interceding on your behalf, asking. That is a pillow we can put our heads on. And I wanna pray for us, with him, for you this morning before we start. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. And even yesterday as I read that, I I just said, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're praying because I don't have words. I don't even know if I'm asking for the right things, Lord. Thank you, God, that we can rest in the fact that you are working all things together for good those who love you in Christ Jesus. And this morning, Lord, as we're gathered around your word, I'm just thinking, Lord, of the lyrics of a very familiar old chorus that Nikki and Mariah were leading us through. Lord, take joy, my king, in what you hear. I love you, Lord. I lift my voice. May it be a sweet sound. Lord, your word tells us, If you're doing the translating, it's guaranteed. And so we ask, soften our hearts this morning, touch us, use your word, use the gospel of Luke. Uh, Lord, the impact that it had on the original reader, Theophilus, 
is obvious. It's gone around the world. He believed. We want to believe. Would you move in our hearts this morning? Amen. While I'm telling you this story, turn to, in your copy of God's word, to Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Uh, Romans 8, the first person I heard Romans 8 from was Paul. And I don't mean the apostle Paul who wrote it. I mean my Paul, my best friend, Paul Birch in high school. Paul, more than any other person, aside from my parents, any other person was instrumental. And he was, we were same grade. We played football together. We did everything together. He was instrumental in pushing me to love Jesus. I go to Paul's house and Paul was the one who made it cool to spend time in God's word. We would go in Paul's room and he had candles and he'd get coffee and he's like, man, let's just get, let's just get coffee, Chad, man. Let's, let's just light up these candles. And let's open God's word and let's just, let's just talk about it. I'm like, okay, it's Paul. So I guess I'll do that. And Paul pushed me, pushed my heart to pursue the Lord, kind of like Luke was for Theophilus, pushing him to know, to understand. Now, Paul and I, uh, we did lots of things together. Paul would get excited about something, and so I would get excited about it, and we would eat together. Paul's first one, he took me to this restaurant in Knoxville called Grady's, and they had prime rib. I'd never had prime rib. He's like, Chad, you got to have prime rib. We go to have prime rib. And he's like, isn't this awesome? And so I kind of started to take this cue from Paul of what was awesome and what wasn't. We would eat together. We would make food together. And not just peanut butter and jelly. We made beef jerky. He's like, we can do this. I read about this. So we buy all this meat, all these spices. And much to my mom's chagrin, <laughs> we're tearing up the kitchen. We made grape juice from grapes. Conquer grapes that we had a bunch. We're like, let's make juice. So we're like cooking them up. He told me about this thing called ramen noodles. I'd never had ramen noodles. We didn't have one packet, not two packets. We made eight packets of ramen noodles. If you know what happens to ramen noodles, as soon as you put the water in it, it's like, boom. So this huge, you know, vat of ramen noodles. We made homemade chicken biscuits. We never did anything small and we never did anything without a huge mess. And my mom would be like, sure, go ahead. Let's just clean up, which we never did. Now I want to say this first about having a Paul. To those who are younger, especially, you're in middle school, you're in high school, you're in college right now, but honestly, it applies to all of us. You need a Paul. You need somebody in your life that is pushing you, who is further along, and who's saying you need to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. I hope you have that person in your life. If you don't, ask the Lord for it. Ask the Lord to put somebody in your life that will bless you in this way and who will make following Jesus seem like it's the greatest adventure ever because it is. And Paul did that for me. Now, it doesn't mean that you're always going to get everything right though. And the Pauls in your life may not have all the wisdom that you need. And so when Paul told me this story, of course, I was as ready to eat chicken and biscuits as I was to listen to this story with him. And he came and he said this story and it may be one that's familiar to you. He said, Chad, I heard this story from a friend who heard it from a friend at our church, which that means it's real, that on Interstate 40 in Knoxville, that's where I lived, I-40, which runs all the way from, you know, east to west coast, 
there was a guy picked up a hitchhiker sitting in the back. The guy started, you guys know the story, don't you? The guy started talking about Jesus is coming back. He said, he looked kind of interesting, like familiar in a certain way. When's he coming back? Soon. He said, the guy looked back to see him and poof, he disappeared. Anybody heard that story before? It's an urban legend. It goes around. And ironically, that story made it a lot around the year 1999, heading into Y2K. For those of us who remember all the hoopla about Y2K and worried about our computers and the dates and all that kind of stuff. So that story was making the rounds. It's a, it's a famous one. It's one that is told often. But Paul got me excited. I started thinking about, I didn't know it was an urban legend. I didn't know that that story went around all the time. I didn't know that it's been told in a lot of different ways. In fact, if you just look it up online, urban legends about the return of Jesus, that one sure enough pops up. But is it bad to think about these things? To ask these questions? I started asking them, what will it be like when Jesus comes back? When will he come back? When will the grand finale of history happen? What's it going to look like? If you've ever wondered about these things, you're in good company because today's passage is one of the first places we see people asking these questions. And Jesus takes us there. It's his word. So let's read Luke 17, verse 20 and 21 to set the table. Here we go. Being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed or seen. Nobody's going to say, look, there it is, or there, that's the kingdom. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Some translations, yours may say inside of you. Being asked by the Pharisees, first thing you notice, doesn't mean it was just the Pharisees asking. At this point, remember we said Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. There are tons of people. There's disciples, Pharisees, and crowd always with Jesus, always around him. And you know this because sometimes he's talking to the Pharisees and you'll see right in the middle of the passage and then he'll turn to the disciples and say, hey, let me tell you this. So he's not like new place, new location, but they're asking, hey, we have questions about the kingdom. Now, not all questions are asked in good faith. And sometimes it's like this. Yeah, when? When is this kingdom of God gonna come? Just dripping with sarcasm because they don't believe. But I think there were a few, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, there were some Pharisees who would become followers of Jesus and they're in the mix. And so maybe there's a little genuine interest. Yeah, that guy just asked it with a lot of sarcasm, but I'll listen in because I really wanna know. I wanna know what's gonna happen. The Bible talks about the grand finale a ton. It's all over the place. Old Testament, New Testament, but there are extremes to thinking about it. What's one extreme? One extreme is this, I don't care. You've probably heard the joke, all the millennial views of when Jesus will come before the millennium, during the millennium, after the millennium, is there a millennium? Pan-millennial, meaning it'll all pan out in the end, I don't care. Some people fall there, I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. Well, are you ready? I think so, I don't know. That's an extreme. That's an extreme to avoid. Okay, the Bible will tell you to avoid that stream. What's the other extreme? The other one is, I know this, this date, this person, wait a minute. Do you see, did you see the news yesterday? 
I can show you in the book of hesitations where that is really important. <laughs> we do, like it's, everybody's got this code. If you fold your page over and if you look at it and hold it up to the sun and you see this date and this, I mean, can you see it? So two extremes, but what is it talking about and why are people interested in it? The end of the world, the end of the world, the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. And so, yeah, it's captured a few hearts and minds over the centuries. A lot of ink has been spilt. A lot of sermons have been delivered. A lot of TV shows, ministries, cults have been formed over these ideas. So how should we think about it? How should we see it? Something that Jesus just said you can't quite observe. On one level, thinking about the return of Jesus and the culmination of the events of human history should get you fired up. It should make you excited. I get so fired up thinking about this. Why should I say that? Look, listen to a couple of verses. First John 3, 2 and 3, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And listen to this verse. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Meaning to think about this purifies yourself. Here's another one. First Thessalonians. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, which is the Bible's code for dead. Okay. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. This we declare to you by a word from the Lord. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then what does he say? Last verse. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thinking about that moment, you can purify yourself. You can encourage someone else. There's power. There's hope. In fact, there's so much hinging on this idea of the return of Jesus that it's part of our DNA here at Pleasant Valley. We have, based on Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Who is our hope? Say it, Sunday school, come on. Jesus is our hope. And so we have four things that we like to call grace anchors because we didn't do anything to get it, but they help us to know who he is. And why is he our anchor? He is the most important person in the room. You may have heard that one around here. He is truth. Not just that he speaks truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And his words give life. The third one, that's why we're praying for gospel impact. His gospel is all we need. For this life and the next, his work, his accomplished work. And number four, he's coming back. It's our DNA. It's something we focus on. We want you to think about it. But as Jesus gives his answer to the Pharisees, yeah, you can't quite see it. He wrinkles some noses and furrows some brows. You may have responded to Jesus this way. Sometimes you hear a verse and you're like, So Jesus says, oh yeah, by the way, the kingdom is already here. It's already here. 
It's in your midst, but right now it's invisible. It's the kingdom you can't see. It's the kingdom you can't see. Now I have this beautiful picture of this tree, the sun, but it was reminding me of that time where Jesus said, this little seed in your heart will grow to become eventually this beautiful tree. You shall be called oaks of righteousness. What do we have in the opening chapters of the Bible? Well, we've got a tree. We've got a couple of trees. What do we have in the closing chapters of the Bible? Trees planted by streams of living water. It's a kingdom you can't see, and, but it's already here. Huh? Something can't be observed. It's in your midst. It's inside of you. What's Jesus saying? I'm here. I'm here. The king is here in your midst. And eventually, I'm going to give you an opportunity for me to live inside of you. But he further implies about his kingdom, and we, imp- we understand this from other passages of Scripture, that you must see the invisible kingdom. You have to. You're going to have to see it. Now, what's the problem with the Pharisees who are asking this? The Jews expected the coming of the Messiah to be with fanfare and hoopla. Here comes the king. He's coming and he's going to take everybody out. And Romans and you and you, this is our king. And you're going down. Boom. Like that's what they wanted. That's what they read. And so when he's like, no, it's already here. They're like, where? What are you talking about? This would be crystal clear that they didn't want Jesus as their king when Pilate stood before them and said, behold your king. What did the Jews say back to him? We have no king but Caesar. Whoa. Whoa. Just translate that a little bit to the 21st century. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. You want me to crucify your king? That's what Pilate said. Crucify him. What do we think about monarchy in the United States of America? And monarchy is where there's one king. Our whole DNA is built on no monarchy. This is about us. Independence, which is amazing. And wonderful and based on the fact that we had a king in England that was a tool, right? We didn't want to be oppressed anymore. But here you have a message from the king of kings saying, it's all about monarchy. It's me as the reigning monarch. How does this sit with us? We have no king. I have no king but me. That's how it sits with me. That's how it sits with a fallen human being. This is what is true apart from the grace of Jesus. We don't want him either. We don't want him. We want to make the decisions ourselves. By saying it's already here though, Jesus isn't saying that the visible kingdom won't come. It will It's a both and. It's a both and. But he is saying that it's a prerequisite to being able to 
have the visible kingdom show up and you not be on the wrong side of the king. He must reign in your heart now for you to see him reign in the physical world. He must reign in your heart now where it's invisible. Ah, oh, that's kind of hard. Well, the Bible talks about this all the time. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things, hope for the conviction of things not seen. Romans 8.24, for in this we hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he can already see? 2 Corinthians 4.18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 5.7, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's all over the place. Yet in us, we still have this thing that's like, yeah, I'm wrinkling my nose, furrowing my brow at you, Jesus. Ah, my thoughts are spinning here. How does this work? How does this work? If that's you, and it certainly is me, you're in good company because the disciples must have been making faces. Right here, they just heard Jesus say this to the Pharisees. They're standing in the background and they're like, what's he talking about? And we know that because later they're going to ask him similar questions. Where is the kingdom? Why can't we see it? So verse 22, he realizes that they're making faces, even if they're spiritual faces inside. And he says this, hey, listen, said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see just one day, just one. Can I just see one day of what it's going to be like when the son of man rules? I just want to see one. But then he says, but you won't. Not yet. They're going to say to you, no, no, look here. Look, look here. Or, or look over there. Do not go out. Do not follow them. Why? And here's what he says. As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other. You guys ever done that when the lightning strikes and you're not looking at it, but it's like, Koo, kind of out the side. And then you look. You're like, come on, do it again. And, every, and people start doing this. The people stand around. When lightning starts happening, everybody turns. It's, it draws your attention in. Then you see it again and somebody else looks. That's kind of what he's saying there. As lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a mystery. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So he says, you will desire to see just one day of the king. What does that mean? There's a ton of hope for me in this statement that I'm going to desire to see the reign of Jesus in his new fully consummated kingdom. So this tells me a couple of things, and hopefully this is encouraging to you. I'm going to be growing. I'm going to be growing. There may be a time in my life where like, I don't care about the return of Jesus. I want to live it up. When I was in high school, I hadn't gotten married yet. Lots of things I hadn't experienced yet in life. I thought about the return of Jesus. And I remember laying in my bed at night being like, not yet. Please, Lord, not yet. I want to live a little bit. You know what? 49 now, I think about it all the time. I think about it all the time. And there's still things I'd love to experience with my family, my children growing up. But there's more and more of me that's like, what is that going to be like? I really want to see that. 
So when Jesus says, you're going to desire to see one day, what that tells me is he is going to soften this tough, old, calloused heart. I'm going to grow. I'm going to want to see it. I'm going to soften. There's going to be a tender heart. Tells me that the veil between here and there, the longer I walk with him, will grow thin. It'll be like I can almost touch it. My ability to see his invisible kingdom will bring about a deep longing and desire to see just one day. I want it increasingly, more and more. I want you to come. I want you to establish your kingdom. Can you imagine one day, let's just say one day of Jesus' reign on earth where all court cases currently on the docket worldwide are handled perfectly and immediately. One day, clean every single case, all of them heard, all of them in his capacity, all witnesses, no fake, no pretense, no twisting the system to, oh, can't do that. Your, your testimony's invalid because I don't like you and I've discredited. None of it. Everything is pure. Just reading in Proverbs this past week, things that the Lord detests, when people are acquitted that shouldn't be acquitted and when people are prosecuted that shouldn't be prosecuted. He hates it. One day, every court case is handled. How about every person that's hungry in the world has a full belly that day? All of a sudden, all the red tape's gone. All the food is delivered. Everybody has what they need. All evil, all things that are bad that are happening that day, he puts a stop to it. Just one day, that's all it would take. Just one word from the king. Yeah, I want that. I want that. And Jesus says, you're going to want this. You're going to get to these moments in your life where you're like, just come on with what's happening in my life. Can we get a little bit of that here? It would be awesome. If you have the slightest sense of desire for this, that is growth. That is discipleship. That is what it means to follow Jesus. If you want this, it's a good indicator that the spirit of God just might be, have a little home in you. If it's not there, it's probably a good indicator to, that's where you start. Lord, I need to probably talk to you about this. I don't think I want this at all. Or it scares me, actually, the thought of you coming back. Okay, let's talk about that. The other good thing, though, about Jesus talking here and, and what he says, because he's really strong, is it'll give you an internal sensor for what's real and what's fake. Yesterday I was in Caribou, change of pace, going over my notes. I thought it would be distraction-free. It wasn't. So sitting there with coffee, trying to focus in. I was actually on this part, trying to think about this. And they had something wrong with their HVAC. There's smoke in the in, in caribou. And there's this guy walking around with this wand and he's going beep, 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 beep. And he would stop and look and look at his friend. Beep, beep. I was like, I am going to hurt you. <laughs> That's what I thought. But the Lord kind of directed me and what I was trying to say, he's like, listen, what is he doing? He's sensing something in the room that shouldn't be there. I was like, oh yeah, got it. To tell the 
fake from the real, Jesus is saying, listen, people are going to try to tell you that they've got the specifics of how this is all going to play out. They know what's going to happen. They've got a secret clue. They're going to write books about it. I've read them. They're compelling. They're compelling for sure. They're going to cause many people to get distracted from the mission I have for you in the church. And I'm telling you right now, don't take the bait. Because that song will end up like this. Don't take the bait. It's pretty at first. Don't listen. That song ends in flames. Jesus is strong here. And I think it's good. It's good for my heart. Don't listen, Chad. Don't follow them. It'll prove to be false. Because when it happens, when the day of day happens, I promise you won't miss it. I promise you won't miss it. It will be so clear. Don't fall for fake dates or panic moments. Have we had any panic moments? I don't know, in the last year? <laughs> COVID-19, the election of 2020, have we been hooked by some of these fears? <laughs> right here, Lord, me, sure. Afraid? What if, no, if this, oh, you get Hebrew, other taken away, all that stuff. And what should we do? Repent, which I have and continue to whenever I get afraid. Lord, I am so sorry. I got to get back on mission. I got to get back to what I know you've called us to. Because see, part of the problem with the allure of a special date a special person, a special sequence of events, this election, this disaster, is that they offer a shortcut around our inevitable path of suffering with and for Jesus. What if the way the Lord is moving the events of history are so that we, as Paul said, fill up the sufferings of Jesus, which I know is uncomfortable for us, but historically, when the church suffers, when the church is persecuted, the church grows. People come to know him, which is why we have said over and over, and I keep saying it to myself as I repent for falling for the panic moments, what if everything we see happening, including crisis at the border, including crisis worldwide, include all the different things that maybe make us afraid, are so that people find him. And when they're looking for him, do they need a voice in the middle that says, I know where, I know where to find him. I, I can tell you exactly where to find him. Even in the midst of this chaos, he is true, good, and kind. It's also a shortcut, if you fall for these things, for living out the basics of following Jesus. It's more fun to try to unlock biblical codes than it is to love your neighbor, tell people about Jesus, spend time in the word, pray, worship, give, serve faithfully. It's way more fun to find the secret codes. It doesn't sell. It doesn't get likes, but it's the way of Jesus. It's what he's called us to. It also creates an inside group and an outside group. And I hate if, if you want to know something that like people have told me that I kind of have this. Uh, so my default, you may not know this. My default when I'm stressed or when I am veering into some of these things isn't, oh, it's, oh, I'm so mad. I want to punch somebody. It's anger. It's anger. 
I want to go after people. And nothing makes me more angry than a preacher or a church or movement that makes people feel little, that makes them feel like they can't understand. When somebody gets up front and starts spouting off all these things that they know and doesn't say, hey, by the way, this was written for the poor of the earth, the poor in spirit, it makes me mad. It makes me mad. And so there's not a lot of things that I'll get fired up about, but if I ever notice somebody doing that to somebody else, I usually say something. (laughs) And I pray for the grace to do that. It creates an inside-outside group. The inside people know the secrets. The outside people don't know the secrets. Well, I I wanna know the things. This is not how God's kingdom works. This is not what he does. Jesus didn't set up some secret code society with a special knock in a back alley to get in. He says, you'll see it. Jesus assures you that you will see it physically. It's coming. The bigger question for us now is how do we see it spiritually? So he tells them, at the end of that verse there, what to look for. His but first statement is, you want something physical to look at? You want something in history that you can see with your eyes? Here it is. One thing, the cross and resurrection. Historic, visible What do we have as an eyewitness in scripture? What are we hearing about? People saying, what does John say when you read 1 John? That which we've heard, which we've touched, which we've seen with our own eyes, we proclaim to you. That's what we saw. That's what represents this invisible kingdom. If you wanna see the invisible kingdom, you look to the cross and resurrection of history. A God who loves, suffers, and dies. There's also a pattern there for us to follow. We're to take up our rights, independence, cross, cross, and follow him. We're told we will experience hardship, persecution, and suffering. Jesus, if you're a king and you have a kingdom, why do you keep talking about dying? Legitimate question at this point. The Messiah is supposed to come and vanquish his enemies, vindicate his people, conquer the enemy, not be conquered. And yet, Jesus willingly offers himself to be conquered. And not by some human army. You know who conquers the Son? The Father. Who crucified Jesus? It's a tricky question. If you read the New Testament, it says God did. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is plan A from before the foundation of the world. God's full wrath on him willingly allows himself to be conquered. Why would he do that? Look at verse 26. This is why. Just as it was in the days of Noah, I would buckle up. If we had seatbelts in here, I'd say, put it on. Because this is, this is the kind of passage that you need a seatbelt for. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and taking pictures of their food and talking about this recipe and marrying and being given in marriage and changing the rules on marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
Oh, verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day. Now remember, this is Jesus. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house, don't go down to take anything else. There's no time. And let, and likewise, let the one who was in the field not turn back. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you in the night that there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where Lord? How's this to finish a sermon? He said to him, to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. See ya. Whoa. Now I want to show you a pic. This is from my office this morning. I was studying and the light happened to do a nice little thing from the window. Sometimes God's fun like that. I was just, I was just going over this section right here. It's exactly what I got right here on my notes. And I was like, I see you. I got it, Lord. When the son of man is revealed, what's this tell us? It's going to be really difficult. What he's talking about is this is going to be hard. These are tough words. And yet we ask the question, why? This is why. This is why he will allow himself to be conquered, to have the full wrath of God the Father fall in him so that you won't have to go through this. That's why. As it was in the days of Noah. How was it in the days of Noah? Scripture tells us that sin and evil had reached a fever pitch. I think the way the verse describes it is that every thought all the time was evil, sin, dark, all the time. So God gives a plan. Do you know how long Noah built the ark? 100 years. That's a long sermon. And all the time telling people, it's going to rain. Did you know it hadn't rained up until this point? There was no rain yet. The dew would water the ground enough. There'd never, there had not been rain. And so people said, he was like, look, it's going to rain. Judgment is coming. And you know what they said? What is rain? What is rain? What is the judgment of God? Who is God? Who has authority? Who can tell us? As much as our children's books and nursery paintings have tried to make this appear as a cute story about furry animals getting a ride on a boat, right? If you think about that, we've put that in our our nurseries. Hey, I'm going to put this worldwide moment of judgment in your nursery. (laughs) There's the little teddy bear on the boat. Millions of people asserted their will and said, we have no king but us. We have no king but us. We will not turn back to our creator. And they drowned. They drowned. What? That's horrible. Isn't that a myth? I've heard some current interpretations of this passage that say that's a myth. It's an allegory. It's a dramatized parable. God wouldn't dare do something like that. Yet he did. And with Sodom and Gomorrah, he did it again. 
And the world would tell you, oh, see, that's why we don't go to church. That's why you got to live it up. You do you. Don't let anybody tell you how to live, especially not some patriarchal, angry, white-haired guy in the sky. It's up to you. It's the American way. Do everything you can to preserve your way of life and do it on your own terms. Here's a question. For Noah, his family, for Lot and his family, did they lose life as they knew it? Yes, absolutely. And they looked stupid doing it. Noah was the joke of everyone. Building a boat in the middle of the desert, never rained before. He's doing this thing with his family. Lot leaving the city, not doing what everybody else was doing. They lost their lives according to the world. But Jesus tells us this is actually the only way to keep it. In order to live, you must lose your life for Jesus. Lose it. If you're a normal human being, this bothers you. Your sense of autonomy. You want to continue to be a part of your own revolution. It's, it's in our nature. It's in our sin nature to revolt, to rebel, to establish our own independence apart from the monarchy of Jesus Christ. Judgment and punishment and consequences are unfair. We will establish our own way of doing things. I asked the Lord to help me understand my own tendency to think this way because I do sometimes and why our finite understanding cannot understand his ways. And I kind of got this image in my head. Imagine you are in a horrific car crash. You're pinned. The car's on fire. Bones are broken. And if you've ever had a bone broken, a significant one, you don't want to move, do you? You can't move. You're pinned Jesus comes and starts pulling you out and everything in you hurts and you are mad at him. Don't touch me. Didn't you create this whole physics thing that an object in motion will stay in motion until something stops it and all this gravity and things like, didn't you do this? I'm in here because you created this. Didn't you create the ideas for people to come up with these things called cars? Do you see how silly and ridiculous it is? I don't want to be held accountable to these things. You somehow have a part in this, don't you? You're hurting me. Leave me alone. Meanwhile, the car is burning and you can't get out. Isn't sin and sinfulness the most bizarre thing? The things that causes us to think, how dare you, God? How dare you have rules? that you hold me accountable to. Let me ask you this. Are you held accountable to the law of gravity today? Can you change it? No. You answer to its truth and to the facts of its laws every day. Some of you are like, yes, I do. You get up and you feel it. Gravity is pulling me down. And even when we try to break the laws of gravity, you could go on top of this building, say, I am revolting against the law of gravity, I will fly. What happens? Mm. You were held to the laws of gravity. That may be simple or too simplistic, but why should his laws of morality be any different? He created those as well. Why do we decide all of a sudden that we can break those laws? In fact, deep down, we all have a sense of what is right and wrong. 
You know why? Because God put it there. Even the most ardent atheist, as I mentioned last week, will light somebody up online for being unkind. Won't they? Why? Why do they care? There's no laws. There's no authority, no morality. Why do they care? He put it there. Because those laws are real. God put them there. People will still think, though, that your ability to see this invisible kingdom is absolutely lame. How ridiculous your life will appear to most of the world. You're living in a fairy tale, Chad. Mythological, spiritual world. Come back to the real world. You know what your king says to you, though? Don't panic. Don't panic. Rescue and vindication is coming. Even though up until the return of Jesus, as much as we try to make the world think this is a great thing, they won't. They will say, you're stupid for doing what you're doing. And people will do life as normal. And when it happens, when he returns, there won't be time to go back and change anything. That's what he's saying. When he's talking about the being on the top of the house and, hey, wait a minute, let me just go downstairs and grab something. What's he saying? Respond now. Respond now. When he comes back, it'll be too late. There won't be time to respond. Did you know that there is a date set on the divine calendar? And there is a divine calendar. That date will be kept on time. He will come back. It has yet to happen, but it will happen. And it will be both a day of vindication and judgment. So Jesus doesn't lay out a rainbows and pony version here, does he? No. No minced words when he describes what's going to happen if you're not on the right side. Think about the way he answers this final question. Where, Lord? He could have said this, which is what we like to think about. Wherever you hear the music, where there's a bright light, where everybody's holding hands and it's really wonderful. No, he says where there are dead bodies, where there's judgment. That's, you'll, you'll know it. You'll know it because you'll see both things happening. Whoever loses his life, we're going to finish with this, will keep it. Well, how do I do that? How do I lose my life? Take your cues from Noah and Lot. You ready? Get in the ark. Get in the ark. Who's the ark? Jesus is the ark. Get in the ark. He has made a way. How about Lot? Don't turn back. Don't turn back. Fix your face on Jesus. And finally, just imagine Lot and even the angels trying to drag Lot's wife. Don't turn around. Don't look. The final thing, take as many as you can with you. That's why you're still here. That's our mission. That's the thing we're stay focused on. Get in the ark. Don't turn back. Fix your face on Jesus. Bring as many as you can with you. This is how you recognize and bow to the invisible kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it will allow you to be ready for when he comes back. So that pillow we talked about at the beginning, Romans 8, the chapter begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with, and there is no separation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Begins with no condemnation, ends with no separation. That is a pillow for our weary heads. Let's pray. Lord, I have come to love the difficult passages of Scripture. And not to avoid them, but Lord, to see that if I'm seeing something really hard and very difficult, 
and scary to look to the cross, to look through the cross and the resurrection and to see that Jesus, you have made a way. So we really, we don't have an excuse. You've made a way for us to avoid it. And we pray, Lord, that uh, one, we would encourage one another with the thoughts of your return. Uh, every generation is to live like it could be tomorrow. So we ask God for your urgency in our hearts. Lord, that you put that desire that the pastors talked about just for one day. But Lord, you'd also put this urgency for us to tell our friends, to tell our enemies, uh, God, that you have made a way in Jesus Christ that you took the full wrath of God. So Lord, as you spoke about this judgment that came on Noah and the world and Lot and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lord, you knew what was about to happen to you. And you knew you were providing a way. And so God, would you give grace for us to respond this morning? I ask this in Christ's name, amen. Why don't we stand together and sing?